If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me please to Exodus chapter 2? Exodus chapter 2 this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. First we'll read the scriptures and then we'll pray and ask for God's help and blessing. So let's look now to Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is God's holy word. Take heed how you hear it. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levi woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this morning. May he be pleased to write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Let's all pray. O sovereign God, we bow before you and ask that as we've opened the scriptures, that you would also open our hearts and our understanding by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Send him to us. Exclude distraction and enliven faith and move us to submit to the truth, we pray, as we study it this day and give ourselves over to it. For the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, we do ask it, and it's in his name we do pray. Amen. You may remember when we were last time in chapter 1 of Exodus that the people of Israel have now come to live in Egypt, and they have prospered, and they have multiplied there. A new pharaoh, however, we noted, has arisen, and he sees this large, foreign, growing, burgeoning population within his own borders, and he sees them as fundamentally a threat. He's afraid, perhaps, that they will join with Israel's enemies. We know this from Scripture, and that they would join with his enemies and escape from the land, and there goes such a force that he has at his disposal. And so he enslaves them. And yet, as we learned last time, the more they are oppressed, the more they multiply. So that was Pharaoh's plan A. That didn't work. He bumps to plan B. He will have all the male children of an entire generation killed, ensuring the end of the Hebrews as a people. His fatal mistake, however, was commissioning the Hebrew midwives to carry out the deed. Because, remember, they feared God more than they feared men. They disobeyed Pharaoh. They kept the Hebrew boys alive, and the Lord blessed them, in this marvelous irony, with families. And so the Hebrews continued not to decrease as Pharaoh had hoped, but rather to increase. So Pharaoh tried again. Plan C. He ordered all the Egyptians, just throw the Hebrew babies into the Nile. That's chapter 1. Here we come to chapter 2. 
And in verses 1 through 10, we're, we're zooming in a bit. There's a broad picture of what's happening among the Hebrew people as they're, despite, Hebrew, or despite Pharaoh's schemings, they're continuing to burgeon and grow and prosper. But now we zero in on one particular instance, the house that belonged to Moses' parents dwelling in their humble slave quarters. Later on in the book of Numbers, chapter 26, verse 59, that tells us that his parents were named Amram and Jochebed. And we here see this little family, and they have risked their son by putting him in that bushel basket. And by God's merciful providence, they have just received him back. Meanwhile, throughout Israel, there is great weeping because of the brutality that has taken their firstborn sons. Weeping all around. It's a heartbreaking story as we read these first 10 verses of Exodus 10. Excuse me, Exodus 2, these first 10 verses of Exodus 2. It's full of anguish, full of pathos. And yet while our hearts are understandably moved by this passage, there is yet a lesson that God would teach us about himself and about his gospel of grace. So three things that I'd like for us to consider as we study our text today. And all three of these points are really really seen throughout the whole text, not necessarily broken down into specific subsections or specific verses. But first, I want us to see the defiant faith of God's people. The defiant faith of God's people. Secondly, I want us to see a God of sovereign irony. One man said this, Our text is dripping, absolutely dripping with ironies, and the joke is all on Pharaoh. And then thirdly, I want us to see a picture of a coming Savior. This chapter gives great indications regarding Moses and who he will grow up to be, that he will be the deliverer of God's people. And because of, of course, the organic unity of all of Scripture, there is a sense in which we are appointed to the true and final deliverer of all God's people, our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's think through those three things together this morning for a few minutes. Let's, let's think, first of all, about the defiant faith of God's people. I love how one commentator sets the scene. He says this, It was during these desperate times that a young Hebrew couple dared to marry, and they produced a son. What was a mother to do? Her baby was a fine, healthy boy. Even if she did not realize that she had given birth to a savior or deliverer, there did seem to be something special about him. This made it all the more terrifying that he was born under a death sentence, that at any given moment, an Egyptian might hear his cries, seize him, and cast him into the great river Nile. For three months, the woman lived in constant fear. Close quote. Well, we know that they could not kill their own son, nor could they give him up to be killed by their Egyptian overlords. So Moses' parents, Amram and Jochebed, protect him for as long as they possibly can. And time goes on, and for whatever the reason, maybe it was the crying Maybe his mother was never leaving the house and the neighbors started to get suspicious and the Egyptian authorities started to ask questions. But whatever the reason, they could no longer conceal the child. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a beautiful word, a beautiful Holy Spirit-inspired commentary on this family. Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now that verse from Hebrews tells us at least three things about Moses' parents. First, it tells us that it was faith in the promises of God that drove their disobedience of Pharaoh. By faith, Moses was hidden, Hebrews says. Secondly, Hebrews 11 tells us that, it was, that there was something about Moses 
himself that spurred on their faith. Hebrews 11.23 says, They saw that he was beautiful. Exodus chapter 2, verse 2, at least in my ESV translation that I'm reading for this morning, it says that his mother saw that he was a fine child. That's something of a loose English translation. Actually, if we look at the original Hebrew, we notice that it is the same Hebrew language used in Genesis chapter 1 regarding the days of creation. God saw that the day was good. Here, regarding Moses, she, his mother, saw that he was good. There's something about Moses that seems to indicate that God's approval and favor rests upon this child. Something we're not told precisely. We're not given explicit insight here other than she saw that he was a a fine child, that he was good. But nevertheless, what it was that she saw strengthens his parents' faith. And then the third thing that Hebrews 11.23 tells us is that this faith enabled them to dismiss the fear of Pharaoh's decrees from their hearts. By faith, Hebrews 11, they hid Moses for three months because they saw he was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. It was compliance with the will and the word of God that informed their actions and enabled them to disobey the evil command of a wicked king. They were made bold to obey God because they trusted his promises. And so, this act of faith protects their son for three months. But eventually, they cannot hide their child any longer. So they make a simple basket, and they coat it in tar, and they make it watertight, and place their son within it, and then they place it among the reeds of the banks of the Nile River. And actually, I love what one commentator says here in noting this verse. In this way, they find an ingenious mechanism for obeying the strict letter of Pharaoh's edict, don't they? The argument might be made, perhaps, that this was their thinking, that they did, in fact, throw their child into the Nile. But the command said nothing about providing him with a life raft. Close quote. And then off he goes in the basket, floating down river. Miriam, Moses' big sister, is hiding among the reeds, keeping watch on Moses. You can imagine her nerves and her heart pounding as well, as of all people, who should discover her little baby brother but Pharaoh's daughter coming down to the Nile to bathe. And she hears the baby crying, and she opens up the basket, and she sees the baby. That's it. It's all over for him now. Look at verse 6. When she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, how does she know that? Circumcision. Hebrew boys, you see, were circumcised in infancy, whereas Egyptian boys were not circumcised until later on near puberty. Pharaoh's daughter need only look at the infant boy. And even if there were no other physical, ethnic features that gave him away as being from among the Hebrews, his circumcision certainly did. This was a Hebrew baby boy. Now understand what that means. Circumcision, as you know, is the sign of God's covenant promises given to Abraham and to his children's children. It's the Old Testament badge of belonging to the people of God, the pledge of the covenant of grace. But to put that mark on the flesh of their infant child at this time, during this raging reign of wicked Pharaoh, to put that sign on his flesh as an identifiable marker of the Hebrew people would be tantamount to signing his death warrant. Surely, surely God would understand if if under these extreme circumstances, if, if Amram and Jochebed had disobeyed and not placed the sign of the covenant on their child, surely they could 
forego it, stall it, delay it. But no, Moses' parents, even seeing the horrors of Hebrew infants being slaughtered, nevertheless placed their confidence in the unshakable trustworthiness of the promises of God. And so they obey God, and they place the sign of the covenant upon their infant child. We talk a excuse me. We talk about it a lot around here whenever we have a baptism, whether it was an adult baptism in the case of David Pesson just a few months ago, or even some of our more recent infant baptisms. We think of little ones like Theo and Henry and others, and we'll be having more in the coming weeks, Lord willing, as with recent babies being born and more on the way. Praise the Lord. This New Testament baptism is the visible badge of belonging to the people of God. It's the emblem of God's promise to save all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And like circumcision, baptism is, according to Romans 4, verse 11, the sign and seal of the righteousness of faith. And here in Exodus chapter 2, we have an exhortation for all of us covenant parents. As we bring our children forward, or you perhaps brought your, having brought your child many, many years ago, as the child is brought to the waters of Christian baptism and we place upon them the sign of belonging among God's covenant people, you are acting in faith, defiant faith. One of my professors in seminary used to say that one of the most defiant things we can do in our hostile culture that is so anti-faith, one of the most defiant things we can do is to each week stand up before the watching world and quite simply declare the doctrines of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, etc. And additionally defiant, he would go on to say, is quite simply to be obedient to God's simple instructions, to mark our children with the sign of the covenant, that we will rear them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And we trust the Lord in faith that He will do right and He will do well. And friends, your faith does not rest in the sign of the sacrament itself. In fact, in Moses' case, the sign was something that might have been detrimental to faith. It placed him in quite literal danger. No, they put their faith, Amram and Jochebed, they put their faith in the sign, not so much, but they trusted the God who made the promise to which the sign pointed. They looked to God, quite simply. They looked to God that he might supply the realities signified, that he would be a God to their child and to their children's children. And so it is for us. One man puts it like this. All they could depend on in that moment as their child is laid among the reeds and the rushes of the banks of the Nile, all they could depend on was the mercy and grace and covenant faithfulness of the God who had called them and saved them. Close quote. And that's true for every one of us, isn't it? especially Christian parents, soon-to-be parents, Christian grandparents. I love how one man noted that many of us are what we might call glad-hearted, glad-hearted Calvinists when it comes to ourselves and our own salvation. And what he means is that we, when we look in our own hearts, we see nothing in our own nature to encourage us. It is foul, my heart is. It is sinful. It is depraved. It is fallen. There's no way I ever would have believed the gospel of grace apart from God's intervention. He called us. He effectually drew us to himself by the gospel. He gave us new birth, and he generated faith within us to rest upon Christ. He saved us, and we believe, and we praise God for it. But then this same man goes on, and he says that so it is for us. We're glad-hearted Calvinists. I'm wicked. God save me. What a merciful God. But suddenly when it comes to Junior, 
everything changes. Calvinism goes out the window, and suddenly we become the worst kind of Arminian. Filled with fear, worried about our child, no longer trusting the promises of God, but looking for that silver bullet, looking for that mechanism, looking for that just that right form of words or that right curriculum or that right parenting strategy that will guarantee that you can make your child a Christian. Brothers and sisters, let us not deceive ourselves. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not the right strategy. By grace we are saved through faith and not of works, not your works as a parent, not your child's work. It is the gift of God and he must do it. Boys and girls, you know that, right? You know that you must trust in and believe in and love and know the Lord Jesus in order to be saved. Boys and girls, you, you, you cannot simply think that just because you go to church or you go to Sunday school or that you were baptized when you were little or even that you, if you grew up in a pastor's house, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. He must save. He must save. Now, not for a moment. Let me be clear. Not for a moment does this mean passivity on our part. Of course, we pray with our children. We read scripture with them. We catechize. We discipline. We disciple. We keep them active in the life of the congregation. Of course, we do all those things. God is pleased to use such means to draw his people to himself. But where lies the confidence? Where lies our confidence? Here's the question. Are we parenting in desperate confidence on our methodology Or are we parenting from faith in the unshakable promises and utter reliability of the God who keeps covenant and is is pleased to save? Are we parenting from desperate, desperate confidence in our methodology? Or are we parenting from faith in the unshakable promises of the God of the covenant who is pleased to save and pleased to keep his promises? That's how Moses' parents did it. They trusted God's covenant They feared God rather than fear the wicked king. They obeyed God rather than men. They placed the sign of the covenant upon their child, even though it would have been in all likelihood his own death warrant. And in their case, wonderfully, notice right in the thick of deadly catastrophe, the Lord graciously delivered their son. Defiant. The defiant faith of God's people. That's the first thing. But then secondly, let us see the God of sovereign irony. The God of sovereign irony. Look at this. Pharaoh's daughter, she joins the Hebrew midwives from chapter 1 in disobeying the king for the sake of the people of God, and she adopts little Moses as her own son. Isn't that an irony? This this passage is dripping with irony. We saw some of it already back in chapter 1. The more the Hebrews are oppressed, the more that Pharaoh tries to snuff them out, the more they multiply. The Hebrew midwives, they spare the Hebrew boys, and when they're called to give an account for it, They answer truthfully, but with just a little bit of cheekiness. Hebrew women are much more vigorous than the Egyptian women, and they give birth before we can get there. What do you want us to do, Pharaoh? And they get away with it. In fact, God blesses them, and they also prosper. They also have families of their own, and so they undermine Pharaoh's agenda. Layer upon layer upon layer, the Hebrews multiply still further. And now the irony continues in chapter 2. It's all a big joke on Pharaoh. It is now Pharaoh's own daughter who finds Moses, and she decides to adopt him as her own son. (laughs) You see, the object of Pharaoh's wrath, the object of Pharaoh's rage, now becomes a member of his own household. God is making Pharaoh a laughingstock 
even while Pharaoh claims absolute power over life and death over his Hebrew slaves. Make no mistake, Moses is saying as he narrates Exodus here for us, make no mistake, despite Pharaoh's own self-delusion, the issue of life and death are in the hands of a sovereign God alone and not a pathetic, self-deceived, impotent, so-called potentate. And look at verse 7. Moses' sister Miriam, she's a clever girl, isn't she? Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Moses' own mother is now Moses' nursemaid, and she's getting paid. Paid wages from Wicked's own coffers to do the thing that her heart delights to do, to raise her own son. And all the while, unbeknownst to Pharaoh, the seeds for his own greatest fear are being planted right here. Chapter 1, verse 10, remember what Pharaoh was so afraid of? That the Hebrews will escape the land. (laughs) Oh, the irony is rich. The wicked schemes of this evil tyrant are the means, the very means, by which Moses would be preserved and protected and raised up in order to be the man who would be the deliverer of Israel from the clutches of wicked Pharaoh. Pharaoh is sowing his own defeat. Moses is raised and fed and clothed and educated and trained in the imperial palace of the world's most powerful kingdom. Who better? Who better to lead God's people? Who better to write the first five books of the Bible, the Torah? Who better? to defy the wicked king of Egypt against all odds. Who better than the one who was raised in the king's own living room? Pharaoh's own evil schemes become the instrument that God uses to defeat his evil schemes. Isn't our God marvelous? I love one man's words here. God is sovereign. Three words. We say them so often, but do you ever tire of hearing them, believer in Jesus? God is sovereign, a solid rock on which to stand, a place to rest your faith no matter the darkness of the times. God is sovereign. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. What comfort there is in those three little words. God is sovereign. Close quote. What you intended for evil. Remember Joseph's words there at the end of Genesis? Joseph's words to his brothers. They sold him into slavery. What you intended for evil... God intended for good. Not only does evil fail to thwart God's plan, God can take evil and make it serve, actually, and he turns it on his head and he uses it to further his own plan. I love here the language of subversion. Right? It's not merely that God overwhelms evil or that God's people overcome evil or endure through evil or persevere through evil, all of which are true, of course, but that God actually takes evil and subverts it. He is able to sovereignly rewire and reorient evil such that it works for and accomplishes a purpose that it would never want to accomplish in the first place. God is here making a laughing stock of Pharaoh, and he makes a laughing stock of Satan and sin, and he will make a laughing stock of all who side with them. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. We looked at it just a few weeks ago. Psalm 2, the one enthroned in heaven laughs 
at the vain strivings of those who would attempt to snuff out his plan or snuff out his people. Hallelujah. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. So that's the second thing for us to see here. First, the defiant faith of God's people. Secondly, the God of sovereign irony. And then thirdly and briefly, a picture of a coming Savior. A picture of a coming Savior. There's several little snippets that happen here that give us an indicator, a a preview of things to come in the life of Moses and the life of all Israel. Remember, Moses' mother saw that her child was good, or tov, that's the Hebrew word, good. She saw he was good, a fine child. Again, those echo God's words of declaration over all creation. God saw that it was good. This is a child of destiny. This is a child of special purpose. Secondly, the word for the basket into which Moses was placed is used only one other place in the Old Testament. Now, the word itself is used 28 different times in the Old Testament, but it's only used in two locations. Exodus 2, where we are, and then Genesis 6, 8, and 9. What's happening in those chapters? It's used for the ark. It's the same word. It's an ark that Moses is placed into. Moses, like Noah, will be the deliverer of his people. He will deliver them from the wrath of God. Now, Noah had but eight people in his covenant household, and Moses led a much larger covenant people group of 600,000, not counting the women and children. An ark of deliverance. Thirdly, Pharaoh's daughter pays Moses' mother to nurse her own son. Now, that's a, that's a wonderful irony. You can, almost, you can almost hear the original Hebrew audience snickering as they hear this story. But even more than that, it anticipated the story of Israel itself when it was saved from bondage. Hebrew narrative loves to do this. Whenever you're reading through your Old Testament, pay attention for these kinds of little clues as they pop up. Hebrew narrative loves to do this, to give pictures in miniature that foretell forecoming events, to, to give a preview of coming attractions, if you like, by, by picturing something in seed form, something which will blossom later. You remember what happens at the actual Exodus event? As they are finally set free from slavery, the Egyptians pay the Israelites. The Israelites plunder the Egyptians. And then, here we have here, in miniature, Moses' own mother getting paid to do what it is her heart delights to do from Pharaoh's own coffers. And Moses' name, it means to draw out. That's what he's for, isn't he? It's, it's a double entendre, you see. He was drawn out of the river as Pharaoh's daughter rescued him. But more than that, in miniature, one day it's going to happen more fully. One day he's going to draw out the people of Israel out of bondage, out of their slavery, and out of Egypt altogether. Put it all together. Slave in Egypt, saved through water, plunders the Egyptians, makes a laughing stock of Pharaoh, And we'll see later he goes on to spend 40 years in the wilderness of Sinai. That's the life of Moses. That's Israel's story in miniature, played out in preview in Moses' life. You see, Moses' experience is representative of Israel's experience. And I say all that because this teaches us an important gospel principle. It is this. God's Savior, little s, his appointed deliverer, is the representative of his people. When we say with Scripture that Jesus is the author and pioneer of our faith, we're not using mere flowery language when we use that. Right? A, a pioneer is one who will pave the way, assuming that others will follow in his wake and will go where he has gone. 
In other words, Jesus goes ahead, yes? And he paves the way for God's people so that where he goes and what he does and where he arrives will also be true of the people who follow after him in his wake. And in this, Moses is a foreshadowing, a a type, a hint of the true and final Savior who is yet to come, the Lord Jesus. Jesus acts for us. Isn't that what we mean when we say Christ was our representative? He obeyed for us. He died for us. He rose in victory for us. He ascended to glory for us, and he will come to bring us home that where he is, we may be also. And because he did it for us on our behalf, what is true of him is now also true of us and will be true of us. You see, the trajectory of Moses, as he pioneers and paves the pathway, sets the trajectory and becomes the trajectory of the future of Israel. Likewise, the trajectory of Jesus' life indicates the future trajectory of God's covenant people now. Moses, with trusting parents, is rescued from Pharaoh's slaughter. Jesus, with trusting parents, likewise later, as we read from Matthew 2, is rescued from Herod's raging slaughter. You see, friends, this is what identifies God's people. Old Testament, New Testament, above all else, more than any religious ritual, more than any ethnic identity marker, it is this. What identifies God's people is that they trust in God's promises and they trust in God's deliverer. They trust in God's promises and they trust in God's deliverer. And so the text before us here today in Exodus 2 is ultimately a gospel text that calls God's people to trust in the greater and better Moses, the great and final deliverer of God's people, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the question. Are we, friends? Are we resting ultimately, truly on Christ? Boys and girls, are you looking to Christ in faith? Do you love him? May it be so. May we look to Christ with the eyes of faith, believing and knowing that we will follow the path that he has trod and that where he is, we shall be there also. Praise God for the ministry of his word to us today. Would you all pray with me, please? Father, how we do give you thanks that you have provided a savior And not just a little S, lowercase s, Savior like Moses was for Israel, but that true and final and ultimate Savior in Jesus Christ for us. We ask you that you'd be pleased to draw us to trust him, who has drawn us out of slavery, out of the slavery of bondage to sin and death and hell, and that he's made a people for himself from every tribe and language and nation. Oh, bless your word to our souls this day for our everlasting good and for your everlasting glory. Amen.